0: have a Bible with you. You can turn it to Matthew chapter 13, starting at verse 31. Matthew 13, starting at verse 31. This is Jesus speaking. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and perch on its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked through all the dough. Well today is our final day. They're finishing up Moses their 40 years of Moses. We are finishing up our 40 years of the Kingdom of God and the Upside Down Kingdom series we've been working on for, it seems like, quite a while, but it's important stuff. And if we, if we miss this, then we might as well pack up our tents and go home as well. Next week, we will be starting a new series called uh, Hope Revealed, which we will be looking at throughout Advent and Christmas. But today, we're finishing up with this set of two parables that Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. In these parables, he says two things. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, a very small seed that in his parable, becomes this huge tree. Now, mustard seeds don't become trees. You don't see mustard trees. You see mustard bushes, mustard shrubs. And so, his parable, he doesn't get it wrong here, but he's saying the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is like this tiny little thing that is planted and dies. But when it is planted and dies, it becomes something supernatural, So big that birds find their nests in it. And then he says, the kingdom of God, if that doesn't work for you, how about this one? The kingdom of God is like a little bit of yeast. And anyone who knows or or bakes bread or bakes like 40 loaves of bread at a time, knows that you still don't need a whole lot of yeast in comparison to all the other ingredients. You put a little bit of yeast in and it works its way through the dough. The kingdom of God is like that yeast that begins so small and yet completely changes the ingredients. This is how we're going to end our kingdom of God series, our upside-down kingdom series. The kingdom of God is subtle. The kingdom of God is like a small seed or like a little bit of yeast. It starts out small, but with God... It becomes amazing. The kingdom of God is subtly subversive to our culture. Now we know, ultimately, over time, the big picture, the kingdom of God, wins over our culture. We've been kind of talking about this, this balancing act, this comparison, the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of the world. Ultimately, when you read the end of the Bible, the kingdom of God wins. Jesus is victorious. He wins over all of the stuff and all of the junk that we see in our culture. Over all of the things that our culture, the kingdom of this world, says is important. Ultimately, Jesus defeats it all. The kingdom of God wins. This is the promise we find in the Bible. And the kingdom wins subversively. The kingdom wins subtly. And this is the part that I think we as Christians have a hard time with. Because we as Christians, I'm speaking for myself as well here, so often I want to win in the same way that our culture tells us that we should win. By having power. By having status. By having control. We look at Jesus Born in a stable, humble, humble beginnings, taking on flesh and blood, and we think, well, that's great for him, but I want the victorious Jesus. I want the triumphant Jesus. We look at Jesus washing his disciples' feet, becoming servant of all, and we think, well, that's nice, as long as I don't have to follow suit. As Christians, we want power, we want privilege, we want to be respected, we want our culture to be a Christian culture, not because we want the kingdom of God to come, but because we want to be the ones in control, we want to be the ones in esteem, we want everybody to want to imitate me. And yes, I'm sure there are people here who would disagree with that, in fact, I'm hoping that there are people here who disagree with that. But there's something about that power and control that is enticing, that is tempting. We see this with our brothers and sisters in Christ south of us in the States. Christians in the U.S. still hold to the idea that America is a Christian nation. Even though, I'm going to get a little political here, even though I think both of their major candidates in the last election failed the sniff test. You know the sniff test? The one where you go, yeah, it's clean? See, because Jesus says, you will know them by their fruit. I'm not sure that either candidate really was producing the fruit, and showing the fruit that we would say, yeah, they're following Jesus well. And yet... All the Christians voted. Not all the Christians voted. A lot of Christians voted. That's my political rant. We're stopping there. We're going to just pray for, for politics. Not only with the political stuff, but the power that Christians in the U.S. wield, or trying to wield, especially the religious right, it doesn't look like mustard seed or yeast, according to the parable, does it? It's much more, I want control, I want power, I want my nation to be the way I want it to be. And there's nothing wrong with that except that that's not what Jesus said that the kingdom of God was going to come in. Now, we up here aren't a whole lot better. Although, I think that we have come to recognize that Canada has not been a Christian nation for a long time now however many of us still mourn the time that we considered it to be a christian nation we mourn the quote unquote golden years 50 60 70 years ago when it was culturally appropriate for everyone to go to church where there was still prayer in schools When the hot morality topics of homosexuality, abortion, euthanasia were nowhere nearly embraced as they are today. And we can look back and we can say, oh, I wish we were back there. I wish we were back in a culture where Christianity was the norm. I want to share with you a few of the problems that happen when. Christianity becomes the power player in a culture. And there are problems with it. I'm sure there are also good parts to that. We kind of force our morality on people, and we hope that by forcing our morality on people, people behave better. But we know that's not actually true, right? But there are problems when Christians become the power players in a culture. Number one, when Christians have the power, when Christians have the governmental control and the cultural status, people start wearing the Christian masks even though they're not Jesus followers. People start wearing masks, the Christian veneer, the Christian mask. They put on the Christian appearance even though they're not Jesus followers. They do the appropriate thing back in the golden years when churches were full of people, I'm willing to bet that many of the people who filled the pews weren't following Jesus. It became a cultural thing. People would put on the mask, they would go through the ritual, they would go through the religion without the relationship. Second problem with this is that Frankly, the kingdom of God actually gets hurt when Christians get into power. It shouldn't be that way, but it does. The kingdom of God actually suffers when Christians have the power control in a culture. If you look at throughout history, if you look throughout history where the church has been most persecuted, the kingdom of God has flourished the most. When you look in our world today at the cultures and at the countries, where Christians are still persecuted and tortured and killed. Those are the countries where the kingdom of God is subversively, subtly thriving. And then we look at places like the U.S. and Canada, Britain, places that have known the gospel, places where it was culturally appropriate for everyone to go to church, And what happens is that everyone goes to church and they get their gospel inoculation. They get just enough of the gospel to become immune to it. To think, I've heard that before, I've seen that before, I don't need it. Because the people who told me about the gospel took off their mask when they left the church. And their life didn't look anything like the mask that they put on when they walked into church. Here's the third issue. The third issue is that Christians start to expect non-Christians to behave like Christians. Did you follow me there? Christians start to expect non-Christians to behave like Christians. We expect Christians to to live in the morality of Christians, to make choices that Christians would make And this is absolute blasphemy. Let me say that again. It is absolute blasphemy to think that a non-follower of Jesus should or could act like a follower of Jesus. Why? Because Christians have the Holy Spirit in us. And non-Christians... Do not. And if you're here today, if you have decided to follow Jesus, if you have surrendered your life to him, and you allow him to cleanse you and work through you, then you have the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God himself living in you. And so our morality, our lifestyles, how we follow Jesus isn't about us at all. It is about the Holy Spirit working through us, and to expect someone else who doesn't have that to act the way we should act is utter blasphemy. Let's look at some scriptures for a second. Ephesians one 13-14 says this, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. You were included with Christ. Isn't that beautiful? When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing your, our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. You have been sealed in Christ. That guarantee of eternal life, that guarantee that you belong to Christ, is the Holy Spirit inside of you. Romans 8, 9 says this, But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit, if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. Those who don't belong to Christ, they can't have the Spirit of God in them. One more. Jesus says this, If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for the, he lives with you and will be with you. So the person who does not follow Jesus, who does not know Jesus, does not have the Holy Spirit in them. And therefore, we should not expect them to live the way God expects us to live. And so the kingdom of God is not cultural Christianity. The kingdom of God is about men and women who are living in relationship to God through the grace of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not a religion. It's a relationship. It does not come down through power and control and status. It comes through humility and servanthood and love. This is how the gospel changes the world. This is how the kingdom of God changes the world. So let me ask you a question. How do you respond to the world? There are usually three options. Let me give you an analogy here, and you can figure out which one you are. Because the world is hard. The world is frightening. The world is scary. The world can make you mad. And we have a decision to make. How do we respond? Some of us respond in the same way that a carrot put in boiling water responds. When you put a carrot in boiling water, what happens? The carrot becomes soft. Sometimes Christians can respond to the world by becoming soft, by compromise. Others of us can respond in another way, kind of like when you put an egg in boiling water. When you put an egg in boiling water, what happens? It becomes hard. And I know many Christians who have become hard and hardened by the world. They become cynical. They look out in the world and they say, it is such a horrible place. God even cannot do anything there. So I'm just going to sit in my holy huddle, and I'm going to wait until he comes back. We become cynical. And there may be people here who are in that first category, or who are in that second category. I hope That you're in the third category here, where you put coffee beans or a tea bag in boiling water, and what happens? The coffee changes the water, and it cannot go back to water. So, how are we going to be part of God's plan to change the world? How are we going to be more like coffee than eggs and carrots? By looking differently, by acting differently, by being kingdom of God focused, and by, as the title of this message is called, by living questionable lives. Now some of you probably saw that and went, whoa, Brian, what are you asking us to do here? Michael Frost, who's a missiologist from, I think, Australia, he's got a a cool accent, he coined this phrase, living questionable lives. And he uses it to mean that as Christians, our biggest influence in our neighborhoods, in our, with our co-workers, with our family, with our friends, is how we live our lives. But to really make an impact in that, we need to live our lives in a way that looks questionable, that prompts people to ask Why is this person living differently? And the fact, friends, is that if you simply keep your head down and you mow your grass and you walk your dog and you pay your taxes and you say hi to your neighbor, you don't look questionable. You look camouflaged. You look like everyone else. And so Frost. Suggests here that the way that we impact our world is by looking questionable. By looking so differently, by acting so differently. That the world says, wow, there's something, there's something different about that guy. And then starts asking questions. And we can see this in scripture. Colossians 4, 2-6 says this. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too, Paul's saying, pray for me too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. And then he says this, Be wise in the way that you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. So that you may know how to answer everyone. He says, Be wise and act differently. Act seasoned with salt. You know, when something's seasoned with salt, it makes you kind of go, Okay, I want some more of that. That's why one of the chips commercials says, you Bet you can't eat only one, right? How about this one here? 1 Peter 3 15 to 16. Says this, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. And always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Live in such a way that when they slander you, When they say, well, he's a a Christian, so he must be a hypocrite. Other people will say, no, no, no. His words, her words, match her actions. In the history of the church, there are examples of this all throughout. I want to share with you one. In the early 4th century, in Rome, there was an emperor, Julian. Emperor Julian started getting concerned about the church. He wasn't a Christian by any means. He worshipped pagan gods, and he was worried about his empire because the church, these Christians, he called them Galileans, because Jesus was from Galilee. So these Galileans, these Christians, were acting in a way that was subtly subverting his kingdom, And he worried that he was going to lose the empire to them. He was so worried, not because of their message, but because of their lifestyle, that people were turning to their religion, as he calls it. He actually refers to it as atheism, because the Christians didn't believe in the pagan gods. And so for him he saw Christians as these Galileans who believed in nothing because they just believed in this man, Jesus. And he thought that they were like a sickness that needed to be cured. Here's what he says. He writes to his officials this. We must pay special attention to this point, and by this means effect a cure For when it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by the pagan priests, then I think the impious Galileans... He doesn't like Christians very much. Then I think the impious Galileans observed this fact and they devoted themselves to philanthropy. The Christians were helping the pagan poor. And they have gained ascendancy in the worst of their deeds... Through the credit they win for such practices. For just as those who entice children with a cake and by throwing it to them two or three times induce them to follow them and then when they are far away from their friends cast them onto a boat on board a ship and sell them as slaves. Obviously he doesn't think that Christians are very good. So by the same method I say that the Galileans also begin with their so-called love feast, or hospitality, or service of tables, for they have many ways of carrying it out, and then hence call it by many names. And the result is that they have led very many into atheism, Christianity. In other words, he says, we got a big problem, folks. These so-called Christians are leading people astray. They're using... Their philanthropy, they're using their love for the poor, their hospitality, their service for others in a way to entice people to hear the gospel. And people are hearing their message and believing it. And it's like an epidemic going on. And so, so Julian, the, this emperor, he, he comes up with a plan. He says, This is what we're going to do, folks. We're going to go on the offensive. And so I'm going to get all my officials and the pagan priests to outlove the Christians. This is what he says. Why do we not observe that it is their benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead and the pretended holiness of their lives that have done most of the most to increase atheism? I believe that we ought really and truly to practice every one of these virtues. For it is disgraceful that when the impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but ours as well, all men see that our people lack aid from us. It wasn't the message of the Christians that was making converts at the beginning. It was the lifestyle of the Christians that was getting people's attention. Subtly, subversively, Bring the kingdom of God into a hostile culture. Now, not surprisingly, Emperor Julian's new social program utterly fails. He can't motivate his pagan priests or his Roman officials to care that much for the poor. He failed to realize that the Christians were filled with the Holy Spirit and that it was through the Holy Spirit that that love and that grace Came. That was their motivation. So how do we do that? How do we live such lives that people will look and say there's something different here? Part of the problem is that we have inoculated people with the gospel. And so they don't believe it unless they see it first. There's an old communication theory that goes like this when predictability is high, impact is low. In other words, when an audience knows what is going to be said, there's very little impact. But when you surprise an audience with something, then they start paying attention. In the same way we now, in a post-Christian society, when Christians give money to a cause... That's predictable. Christians do that. Our culture knows that. Our culture knows that Christians are supposed to be good citizens. And so when we give money to a cause or when we create a feeding program or, or build a hospice, they say, well, yeah, that's what Christians are supposed to do. We still need to do that because that's what Christ calls us to. But we need to up the ante, Folks. If we go out and we snowblow our own driveway and then we snowblow our neighbors, it kind of looks like, yeah, he's a good person. He's a nice neighbor. So we need to up the ante. We need to live unpredictably. We need to be loving radically. This is what Paul wrote to Titus. In Titus chapter 2 I want you to listen to the instructions that Paul has for Titus these are some of the ways that he suggests that the people in Crete are to live differently radically than their neighbors so what it says you however must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine teach the older men to be temperate worthy of respect self-controlled and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the ways that they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to too much wine, but to teach what is good. In this culture, if you were an older woman, and you weren't a gossip or a drunkard, it stood out. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the Word of God. Obviously, the younger women were out of control as well, probably because they looked at the older women and said, well, that's how I'm going to be, so I better start getting on that train. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set an example by doing what is good, In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they may make... Listen. In every way they may make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Now, some of you may not know this. Crete, the island of Crete where where Titus was ministering, was full of drunkards and wild people and no self-control and all these things. And so, these are radical changes. But I want you to, to notice that last line. He says... To do all these things, to obey your masters, to live temperate lives, to be self-controlled, not so that you can earn God's love. That's not what he says at all. Why are they to do these things? It has nothing to do with the grace of God that they need to earn, because they don't need to earn a, a minute of it. Why? So that the gospel can look attractive. So that the message that we now have can be appealing to people. So that people can look at us and say, you honor your husband. You don't actually like wait at bus pickup and slander your husband with all the other wives. Why is that? You're not complaining all the time about your boss and about your, about your work and, and, and you know telling all those rude jokes with your co-workers. Why is that? We've said this a number of times here at Chalmers, but in our culture, in a culture that has been inoculated with the gospel, in a culture that doesn't believe it until it's been seen, we need to earn the right to be heard. We need to earn the right to be heard through our lives, through how we live. And only once we have earned that right to be heard, once we have earned the right to stand up and say, this is why I believe what I believe, then we move on to sharing our story. And each and every one of you has a story to share. Each and every one of you has been affected by Jesus in some way. And that's where you start. Friends, you do not need to be the best evangelist out there. You simply need to have a heart for people to know your God and to live that out in your lives and to share what he's done for you. For when the time comes when someone says to you, why, when you go out to, to the bar with, with us co-workers, why do you have, like, one beer when the rest of us are having eight? That's the moment to not be silent. That's, that's the moment not to say, well, you know, you know I, I just want to be able to drive home, or, well, if I have too many, my wife's going to get really upset. No, that's the time to say, well, I'm a follower of Jesus. And as a follower of Jesus... I want to keep control of my body to honor him. When you're at school and you help someone whose books have like sprawled all over the place and you take that time to like help them with their books and your friend goes, "Why did you do that?" Instead of the, well, I'm, you know, I'm just a nice person or I don't know. That's the moment to say, "I'm a follower of Jesus." tells me to love my neighbors. And this person, in this case, is my neighbor. It doesn't need to be the theology of the Trinity. It doesn't need to be exactly how the atonement works. But when that moment comes, speak up. Two more quick thoughts. One... A while back in the summer, some of you may have heard about this. There were these guys who had come, I think, from London. And they had, like, sandwich boards on and were, like, had their megaphones and were yelling, like, incredibly obnoxiously and abusively scriptures and telling people that they were going to hell. And they were walking in downtown. I didn't actually see them, but I then went to pick up my daughter from school and someone said to me, oh Brian, there were some some guys that you might know that were downtown and this is what they were doing and I I just said to them, people like that who make my job so much harder. And this one woman who isn't a Christian, she looked at me and she said, no Brian, it's people like that who make people like me trust people like you more? And I thought for the second, I thought, OK, this woman has seen something in my life, and I have no idea how, because like we don't interact very much, like I pick up my kid. But she has seen something there that has made her say, "This person's different than these people with the sandwich boards and the megaphones. And I hope and pray that that's the case. And for me, uh, I don't know, and so therefore I haven't told you exactly how you, in your current situation, in your context, are to live questionable lives. I don't have that answer. And I think it would be, a little unfair for me to kind of say, okay, this is exactly how you're supposed to act when you're at school. And this is exactly how you're supposed to act when you're on the construction site. And this is exactly how you're supposed to act with your family because you know your life much better than I do. But I want to tell you folks that God has a way for you to live a questionable life. God has a plan For you to act in a way that makes the people around you say, hmm, that's a little different. And when the moments come, when you're faithful in that, and when the moments come and someone says to you, hey, why did you do that? Why do you go to church on Sunday? Why do you not slander your boss. Why why do you do these things? That's your moment to say, it's because of Jesus. It's because of Jesus. I often say you don't have to, again, you don't have to know all the theology, but you need to be willing to stand up and speak up and then sit back down and shut up. And if you can do that when the Holy Spirit prompts you when you can do that it's going to bring more questions and more questions and more questions and you're going to be able to share your story all because your life was questionable let's pray Heavenly Father I pray that you would help us to have boldness to have boldness to speak up when you give us those moments. To have boldness to say what you are doing in our life. That we would have boldness to say, this is why I'm different. Father, I, I just ask for forgiveness for the times that I have been given that opportunity and I have botched it. For the times that I have been given the layup and I have just fumbled For the times that I have been meek and taken the, well, you know, it's just what a good neighbor does. I take that exit too often. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be your witnesses in this world. In a world that desperately needs to know you. I pray that you would help us to share what you're doing in our lives. Father, right now I just pray that as we go home today that you would give us wisdom that we would be starting to think about what are the habits, what are the rhythms, what, what could I do, what could we incorporate as a family, what could I do at my work that makes me look different? What is it that you want me to do to be questionable? Father, we thank you that in the end, you win. We thank you that we get to be on the winning team. We ask that you would help us to be that yeast, to be that mustard seed, to infiltrate our culture little by little. Thank you, Lord. Friends, let's finish by praying the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray together. Let's say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil.